But good to have all of you with us on the Internet, and good, uh, again, as I say, to uh, all of you that are here. I wanted to bring your attention over here to the uh, book of Revelation for a moment. I want to talk a little bit today about prophecy and things that concern many of us in this day and age that we're living in. There's a very pertinent, cogent, and poignant warning from the prophets to all of us in the day and age that we're living in. And sadly, so many people today make the very large mistake, and sad mistake, frankly, about the prophets in that they relegate them to just purely historical figures. And that is so wrong, because in so many cases, the prophets have indeed a message today for all of us here in the 21st century, believe it or not. Yes, they are certainly speakers of and are indeed historical writers. They did write to their time. They did write to their current events and conditions that they were contending with and facing. But it doesn't dismiss the fact that in many cases as well, there were other meanings and or futuristic visions that they were also in conjunction with what was going on in their time speaking in a pre-type, although they themselves admittedly oftentimes didn't even realize what they were saying or what they were being led to understand and see. But here in Revelation, there is a very interesting point the Apostle John makes to my point of the fact that the prophets are very contemporary. Here in verse 10, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10, and in verse 7, I want to bring your attention to this statement made by John, wrote it in vision. He states this, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, now this is the latter days. I mean, this is, this is basically, uh, we're talking here uh, with regards to the trumpets. We know that Revelation is broken up into three sets of seven. We've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials. Here we are in the seventh uh, trumpet or the seventh angel, and he says, uh, and shall sound, and the mystery of God should be finished, he writes, as he has declared to his servants the prophets. What does that tell you? It tells you that even in the voice or in the day and age of the seventh trumpet at the end time, the prophets are still indeed contemporary because John is saying as they spoke. The mysteries of God are now being revealed in these times. And so it's important, I think, that we do understand that this indeed is, is a truth in regards to your Bible and again is pointed out by another apostle over here by Peter. Over here in Second Peter, just a few pages uh, back in chapter 3 and in verse 1, we read this. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. This is chapter 3, 2 Peter, verse 2 now. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Here's Peter, some hundreds of years later, appealing to people in his time to listen to the prophets. Very important point. The prophets, again, even in Peter's day, some 2,000 years ago, of course, 
uh, were still, as far as Peter was concerned, very relevant uh, to the day and age that he was living in. So he says here in verse 2, again, reiterating that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Continuing on in Second Peter over here in chapter 1, just a page over in my Bible, on page 293, by the way. <laughs> over here in Second Peter chapter 1, we read this, and in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so it is here where in verse 19 he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, of inspired speaking. And of course, that goes along with many of the insights that we have with regard to uh, understanding of prophetic events in the future. Now, why do you think God's church would have an insight, an advantage in being able to understand and perceive certain events specific to the future? Think about it. And the reason for it if you really think hard about it, is because until you learn to look at the world and begin to develop a worldview that views the world through the paradigm of Israel, you're just floundering. Anything goes. That's why you have so many people in the traditional Christian community today thinking that the United States is the beast of all things. You've got people confused about what is going to happen in the latter days and what is going to unfold and be the threats to modern-day nations. And, brethren, I submit to you, until you begin to develop a paradigm whereby you're looking at the world, the geopolitical landscape of planet Earth with a Israelitish or Israelitish paradigm, you will be confused. You will be confused. The story, and you know it as well as I do, the information that we have heard from time to time is that the Bible is a story of one man's family. I think that's not a strange statement to hear because you've probably heard it before. It's the story that begins to unfold just this side of the flood with a guy named Abram, whose name later was changed to Abraham, who had a son Isaac, who had a son Jacob, who had 12 boys. But this story of Israel stretches out from Genesis and does take a continuum. It's a continuous story all the way to Revelation. It's all about how God is using this idea of a prevailer with God, a family that he himself established, and consequently through that family, has been able to develop a program of salvation by which mankind can enter into eternal life. 
You heard Dave talk about spirit life in the prayer that he just mentioned. He talked about how we can be comforted in knowing this salvific program we're involved with does provide us with life eternal on the other side of this physical life. And that's really comforting. And that message, brethren, is in your Bible embedded, as I said, from Genesis through Revelation. It opens up, and you can see it right there. I'm not going to turn to a lot of scriptures, but I'll reference them. Perhaps you can look at, uh, them up later on when you have uh, a more convenient time for yourself. But in Revel- uh, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the original promise, broken up into two segments, is laid out there for Abraham. He's told that he would become a great nation. And secondly, through his seed, all of humanity would be blessed. A promise of salvation through the family of Abraham, as well as Abraham would be the recipient of great physical wealth and prosperity. Two segments, one promise given to Abraham, of which was passed down to his sons, as the promise was given to Isaac, and then later on extended to Jacob, and then later on broken up, but extended specifically to the sons of Joseph for prosperity, and the tribe or son of Judah for the seed. And as we all know, without belaboring the point, as pointed out in Hebrews, all of us are well aware of the fact that Jesus Christ was Jewish. He came from the tribe of Judah. And in that regard, mankind is indeed uh, introduced to the Messiah uh, at that point through uh, Jesus Christ, as we understand, born of a virgin through the family of David uh, and the tribe of Judah. But this, this promise of physical wealth and spiritual blessings, as I say, is a continuum down through your Bible. The story continues in Genesis 22, 16 through 18. Genesis 35, it continues to pick up steam. And this promise is connected in verses 10 and 11. Later on, it's articulated in specifics in Genesis 48, 13 through 22, where now the uh, physical portion of that promise is broken up into a subchapters A and B in the tribes of Joseph whereby one is going to become a great company of nations and the other is going to become a great nation and those two representatives are the grandchildren of Jacob sons of Joseph and you're told there and introduced for the first time in chapter 48 of Genesis that God is now going to go ahead and give a double portion to the tribe of Joseph. And he does that by splitting that physical promise of wealth and prosperity to Manasseh and Ephraim, the grandsons of Jacob, and which were the sons of Joseph. And then later on in chapter 49, and I'm going to turn over there, Genesis chapter 49, because, again, this is a very important chapter, and I want to emphasize something. Many people don't recognize chapter 49 as a definitive, unquestionable prophecy for the latter days. But it is. Notice verse 1. Jacob called unto his sons. So Jacob is on his deathbed. He's the old man. He's the father. 
and he is bringing his sons, his 12 sons, to his side. And he said, gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you, you boys, look at this, in the last days. In the last days. I'm not telling you what's going to befall you now. (laughs) I'm going to tell you what's going to befall you in the last days. In other words, you are about to enter into a description of profiles of what Jacob's boys will become like in the latter days. In the latter days. And when you read, I don't have time to go through all of them, but when you read, focusing on over here in uh, verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. This is verse 9. You are gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion who shall rouse him up, is the question. Well, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is basically the symbology of a kingly line, of of, uh, rulership. It says, it shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet unto Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And that, of course, is definitely indicative of Jesus Christ coming out of this lion's whelp, this tribe of Judah, to become the savior of all humanity from that particular tribe. Dropping down to verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. He'll have so much, it will exceed his boundaries. It will go beyond his own sovereignty and what is defining his boundaries as a nation. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. He'll be hated in the latter days. Joseph will be hated in the latter days. Hmm, interesting. He goes on, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, you shall be on the head, they that is, I'm sorry, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. And of course, latter days, this particular profile would be illustrative of the fact that he would be separate from his brethren. And physically speaking, and interestingly enough, when you begin to understand these profiles, you begin to see some real insight on how a lot of this is just picture perfect in terms of this puzzle fitting together to describe the British Commonwealth people who are separate from Europe through an English channel and the United States of America, which is separate from all of them that are formerly Israelitish in connection by an ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, separate from their brethren both physically and, of course, by virtue of the prosperity and wealth that they would all have and ultimately uh, be the recipients of in the latter days. Now, obviously, that uh, is conditional, and as we will go on through here the presentation, we will uh, see what I'm talking about. But, brethren, this story 
This story from Genesis to Revelation is stranger than fiction. When you get into the details, I'm telling you, when you get into the details and begin to really uncover the nuances of how all this is, it is is amazing. It's incredible that it has even been able to be engineered. And when you begin to recognize how it all has begun to play out, you can't help but to see the providential hand of God steering, guiding, directing, producing. (laughs) I mean, in every sense of the word, causing certain results to come to be so that this plan that I've often said prophetically, the script is already written. God's painted himself into a corner. So now he has certain things to fulfill. For those of us who understand the script, in some cases, in a broad sense, we can begin to see how certain things are indeed fulfilled. Is not Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecy? Of course. Jesus Christ has fulfilled prophecy. As much as the other segment of the promise of wealth and prosperity, wealth and prosperity throughout the world of, and associated, of course, with those two nations, uh, as I said, the British Commonwealth and, and the United States. But contrary to so many, so many uh, in the Christian community today, they don't see, they do not see the connection. Sadly, they suffer from a misunderstanding in many cases because they associate Israel with the church, not realizing that in the latter days, as we read in Genesis 49, verse 1, there would be tribes of Israel in the latter days that could be and would be profiled in a certain way, as premised there in Genesis 49, 1. Over here in Isaiah, chapter 11, let me turn your attention. Many of you are familiar with this scripture. It's read a lot during the Feast of Tabernacles, primarily verses 1 through about 10. I want to pick up in verse 11 for today's presentation to stay on on track here and on point in regards to uh, what we're talking about. Because it does us well to recognize That Israel, yes, there is a spiritual Israel, of course, the church, a spiritual Israel. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that there is indeed a physical Israel that is, in fact, connected to ancient Israel that still exists in the latter day. And let me point this out, because Isaiah, this prophet that spoke 700 B.C., roughly 2,700 years ago, states this. He says in verse 11, chapter 11, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again a second time to recover the remnant of His people, which shall be left in Assyria Assyria, and from Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah. 
So here again, for those who may think that, well, Isaiah is just talking in general terms and he's just talking about the Jews. No, no. Isaiah was very pointed about the fact that he recognized the distinction between the two houses, Judah and Israel. And by the way, it's important. It is important for all of us to recognize that we need to really put the prophets in their timeline. Isaiah spoke to the northern ten tribes. Primarily his message, though some of it was to Judah, primarily he lived during the invasions of the Assyrians invading the northern ten tribes, that portion of the divided kingdom. And we have to keep in mind at this time, Israel was divided already for uh, a good many years. And as a result, Judah was to the south, capital city, Jerusalem, and Israel was to the north, capital city, Samaria. Isaiah was speaking to the northern ten tribes. They were being invaded by the Assyrians. And as a result here, what he's talking about is that they would be uh, brought back a second time. He says in uh, verse 11 there that we read that they would, um, that Lord would set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of his people. Well, brethren, they haven't been recovered. Now, guys like John Hagee would want you to understand that what's going on in the world today with the Jews going back to Palestine is the recovering of Israel. No, it's not. I want to make that clear. The biblical definition of the house of Israel going back to its homeland, Palestine, must include both houses. As per Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 37, where it talks about the two sticks becoming one, becoming one. See, this story goes throughout the whole prophets. The story is, is an amazing story. And when you weave and dodge and, and drive and negotiate through all of the circumstances and nuances, you see the continuum become clearer and clearer as how each part or piece of the puzzle fits together in bringing this story of restoration, of millennial bliss, and ultimate salvation in spirit life to humanity. It's an amazing story. Amazing story. And here the prophet continues on, and he says, dropping down here to verse 15, And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, talking about the Gentiles, and with his mighty wind, Shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod? Now remember, it is these that are outcasts of Israel in verse 12 and the dispersed of Judah, verse 12, that are going to come over dry shod out of the countries where they were captives in the listing of countries there in verse 11. And in verse 15, he says, they will come over dry, uh, dry shod. Verse 16, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people. Verse 12, his people, Israel and Judah. Meaning, in the latter days, when this happens, when God collects all those people from those captured nations, this means there's got to be Israelites and Jewish folk that are collected in the latter day. So what does that mean? That implies there must be some nations of Israel 
in the latter days and a nation of Jews in the latter days. And we know where the nation of Judah is, although the, uh, the um, media and the press would like you to know that that's Israel. Well, it is. I mean, you know it as well as I do that all Jews are Israelites. But not all Israelites are Jews. And again, I've often said like Texans, you know, minus all the illegal immigrants, all Texans are U.S. American citizens, right? But not all Americans are Texans, if you get my drift. And so in this case, brethren, yes, Jews are Israelites, but they don't define all of the Israelites. And here's Isaiah making a distinction in the latter days, in the latter days, that the two houses exist. And he says here uh, in verse 16, let me reiterate one more time, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Wow, what's that? It's an exodus. There's another exodus coming. Now, Isaiah, remember, spoke to the northern ten tribes in around 710, 715 B.C. Let me take you 120 years forward into the days of Jeremiah and turn your attention over here to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 takes us now to about 605 or so, 610 B.C., about 120 years down the road. The northern ten tribes of Israel no longer exist. They have been taken away and are captured and are in the areas of the Medes and up in the northern areas of the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea area. Now we have Jeremiah speaking to Judah in the south. And Judah is under invasion by the Babylonians who beat up the Assyrians. So the Assyrians don't even exist anymore right now as an empire. The Babylonians have replaced the Assyrians. And now they are threatening to invade Judah. And here we are, Jeremiah, and chapter 31. And Jeremiah is talking about the latter days. And he's talking about this time, verse 1, says the Lord, uh, will I be the God of all families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And that's a key. The time is coming when I shall be the God of all the families of Israel. That means all 12, the Jews included, Israel and the Jews. He goes on here, down through uh, verse 7, but I want to pick up the context in verse 8. Behold, I will bring them. Notice, this is 120 years later, a different guy, Jeremiah. We read Isaiah, but he's on the same page. He's on the same page as Isaiah. Notice, he says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them. These are not spirit beings, brethren. This is not Matthew 24 when Jesus comes back and he collects all of his people from the north and the east and the west and the south. This is not that. Those are spirit beings being collected, his people, in a resurrection, meeting him in the air, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead rise first and the, li the living will be changed uh, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. We know all of that. This is different because notice he says, and with them the blind, the lame, women with child, and her that travails with child, pregnant, together, a great company shall return there. 
They shall come weeping. With supplication will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of the waters in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble. For I am the father of Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. And say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the, land, from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Now notice how this links up with Jeremiah 23. Real quickly here. Go back to Jeremiah 23. Same prophet, speaking at a different time, but again about this same theme, this same time of where these refugees are coming out of captivity. As Isaiah said 120 years before, and now Jeremiah here in chapter 23 reinforces exactly what uh, Isaiah had mentioned. And here in verse 6, he states this, In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel. If Jeremiah didn't understand the distinction between the two houses, why would he separate out Israel and Jews? If all Jews are all that defines Israel, why would Jeremiah separate them out? Brethren, think about it. Because Jeremiah recognized the importance of the distinction of the two houses. And so he says, In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say the Lord lives, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, instead, basically, that's what he's saying here, but the Lord lives, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Again, referencing this exodus of refugees, the blind, women and children, ones that are pregnant, weeping and crying, coming out of captivity. And as other scriptures illustrate, one of the first collection efforts, one of the first legislative decisions upon Jesus' landing on the Mount of Olives is for His spirit beings to go out and collect Israel, collect Judah, bring them back to Palestine to set up this city on a hill of which all the Gentiles will be drawn to during the millennium. And as a result, be able to look to Jerusalem as the representation, all nations, Gentile nations, all nations of the world, look to Jerusalem at that time throughout the millennium as an example of what God is expecting of them as a nation of people. And so we see, as I say, this happening uh, and occurring. And so, again, I, I just want to mention this because there's so much confusion about this. But a lot of it is the result of not looking at the world with the Israelitish paradigm. And that's where people get confused and mixed up. And if you don't have a paradigm by which God views the world, then chances are 
you're going to get confused in many respects based on the noise surrounding you in the cultures that we live in today because there is a lot of confusion today. Wouldn't you admit that? I mean, there is so much. I mean, it's TMI. It really is too much information in many respects. There are conspiracy theories out there. There are uh, different types of theological perceptions that people now are sharing. There's all kinds of, as I say, noise that is serving to confuse so many, so many people. But I want to stay with Jeremiah for a moment because, again, prophets have a way of speaking to their own day and age, but yet at the same time, because prophecy is a a potalismatic. It's a potalismatic in a sense. And what that is is just a, a big word that illustrates that there is a foretype or a pre-type, later on there can be a more stronger, bigger, broader, larger in scope, fulfillment of the same or similar set of circumstances along the way. And it doesn't only have to be once and then this final one. There could be repeats along the way as well. In, much, uh, in, in some cases, almost like mountain ranges. You know, you get up over a, one mountain and you look out and you see, oh, man, there's more ranges ahead of me, you know. You go down in a valley and you look up and you think, ah, this is it. It's just one mountain. You get up on that top of the mountain on that one and you look back out and, oh, man, there's another half a dozen mountains ahead of you yet. And so prophecy oftentimes can work that way. And it's up to us, of course, to look at history because that's what we're told. For you to be able to have a strong, healthy grasp of the future, you need, as pointed out in Isaiah, I think about chapter 49 or so, you need a strong understanding and good grasp of history. And why is that? Because God repeats patterns. I point out the fact that in Daniel chapter 11, you know this as well as I do, there's going to be again in the latter days a king of the north and the king of the south, in the latter days, right before Jesus returns. I mean, this is a major event, and it deals with a, a global-scale conflict that's going to accelerate into Armageddon. Because when you go through Daniel chapter 11 and then go into Daniel chapter 12, you're up on the resurrection. And we all know what happens if the resurrection is happening, right? Jesus is coming. Because that's not going to happen without Jesus coming and bursting through the clouds. So this king of the north... And the king of the south is going to repeat. And I say repeat because it happened before. It happened before with the Seleucids and it happened before with Ptolemy. The king of the north, Syria, fought the king of the south, Ptolemy. You know the story, or at least you should, whereby those four generals of two left, the Seleucids and Ptolemy, were left and they morphed into Rome with the king of the north being the winner. Brethren, the pattern repeats in the latter days. The pattern repeats in the latter days. Well, here in Jeremiah chapter 3, we read an interesting set of circumstances again in chapter 3. Breaking into the context in verse 6, again, Jeremiah writing and speaking to his people at the time, as well as out into the future. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah, the king, Have you not seen that which backsliding Israel has done? 
Now, this is interesting. Remember, Israel does not exist at this time. Very important you put the prophets in their timeline. As a matter of fact, I've got uh, sheets of paper on the back there, uh, the table, that if you would like, uh, before you leave, uh, take one. It will give you the parallel associations of when these prophets spoke during what times of the kings, be they to the kings of the north of Israel, the northern ten tribes, or the, uh, uh, the uh, nation of Judah in the south. It'll be very helpful to you because once you be, uh, you're able to put them in context in their timeline, then you can begin to understand and recognize what makes sense for their day and age and what doesn't. <laughs> because when you understand that Jeremiah is in the midst of an invasion by the Babylonians, as Isaiah was in the midst of an invasion by the Assyrians, and then you begin to see what they're writing about and what they're saying, then you can begin to understand whether or not what they're saying does indeed make sense or does it apply to something else. Otherwise, in some cases, it would be very bad humor for these guys to say the things they're saying when in fact they're under invasion and under threats of safety and their families being taken into captivity and their homes being burned. So here the prophet says this, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? Well, that, that was 120 years ago. Oh? Does Jeremiah know something we don't? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn you unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So Jeremiah recognizes the distinction between these two houses. He's playing one against the other. He knows perfectly well that the one was bad and is still bad, and hasn't come back to God, which means, by the way, that it still exists somewhere, and God's watching it and calling for it to return to Him, but hasn't. However, with Judah knowing that, should be held even more accountable, and he says so, that she, Judah, is even more treacherous because she didn't learn by the failure of her sister, Israel. That's the story that we're getting introduced here to and the perception of which God is essentially um, describing. So he says, And I saw when for all the cause whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement. And yes, he allowed the Assyrians to invade and took them all away. <laughs> Divorced them. And her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredoms that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks, meaning she turned to idolatrous worship. She allowed herself to become all consumed with the things that she could consume and got her mind on things, on her own condition. You know, all the things that make life what they are. Not just always uh, maybe worshiping false idols and so on, but just not worshiping God finding that life's pleasures, whether it's a new coat or a new chariot, in their case, you know, or a new horse, or a new ivory uh, couch, as we understand. Because, by the way, Israel, when it was invaded by the Assyrians, I'm not talking about here with the Babylonians, 
But when Israel was invaded by the Assyrians, Israel was at a very peak of its affluence. They had their summer homes. They had their big, um, uh, what you could say, mansions. They lounged around in their, uh, on their couches of ivory and had all of this very luxurious kind of uh, lifestyle of which the Assyrians came and destroyed. But at any rate, I sidetrack here in verse 10, coming back now to Babylon invading Judah. We read here, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned unto me with her whole heart. But feignly, says uh, the Lord, and the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Israel, return unto me. What's he telling? Jeremiah never went north. Jeremiah never went and talked to the Israelites who were in captivity in the north. He specifically says, go to the north. The Israelites were not taken to Egypt when they were invaded by the Assyrians. They were taken to the cities of the Medes and then up north into the Caspian Sea area and up into the Black Sea area. They were north of Israel, migrating west toward the Atlantic Ocean and moving in that direction and had been for almost 100 plus years already at this point in Jeremiah's life. And so now God appeals to Jeremiah, but this wasn't Jeremiah's role. Jeremiah's role and mission was of a different sort and defined differently. But today, brethren, I submit to you, Jeremiah has a message to those peoples and that culture of which carries the name Israel in the 21st century. And this message is certainly very apropos to all of us today who have even more accoutrements, more distractions. We have iPhones and computers. We have silk ties and fancy dresses. We've got fast cars and all kinds of different types of things that we can just take our time up with and never open this Bible to learn the words and the information that comes from it. People ask me, you know, how, how, how come you, or how can you know so much about what the Bible has to say? Because I take time with it. There's no shortcuts. And I don't even know anywhere near what I want to know from it. There's so much more to know. But brethren, it does not happen if you take this Bible, throw it on the back seat of your car, and say on Friday night, hey, where's my Bible? <laughs> oh, it's in the back seat of the car. It's been there all week. We've got to take time. There's no shortcuts to all of this, as I say. And if you don't take the time, time will pass you by, and the relationship that you have with God will not be maximized. It will not be maximized. You have time right now to maximize your gifts, maximize your talents for the advancement of the betterment of the whole. And that whole is your working and commitment towards serving Jesus Christ in the millennium and then on into eternity. That is your objective, not what you're doing today for a living, not where you're living uh, and doing whatever you're doing in your homes. That's all part and parcel to the preparation of what this has to offer us. So therefore, in the context of that, how are we doing? (laughs) How are we doing, you see? Jeremiah is saying, in this case, Judah was failing miserably and consequently falling far short 
of her sister Israel. And as a matter of fact, Israel was in better shape than, uh, uh, than Judah was at this time simply because Judah knew better due to what happened to Israel a hundred plus years before. Now I want to turn your attention to another prophet. Over here in the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet that spoke in parallel with Isaiah. As you will see with that sheet, and it's very important, if you can get the context of when these guys spoke, again, let me reiterate, you'll have a better understanding of what they're writing, and therefore, with that understanding, putting yourself in their timeline, knowing what was going on around them, be able to recognize a little bit more clearly what is for their time and what isn't. Micah spoke during the days of Isaiah. Now remember, Amos came and went. Amos was a prophet that actually died about 20 years before the Assyrians invaded the northern ten tribes of Israel, not Judah, the northern ten tribes. Amos spoke about all kinds of things. And it's interesting to note that if you do get familiar with Amos and read through his whole book, it's an amazing story of things that never happened (laughs) in his lifetime. I mean, when the old man died, everybody was probably saying, wow, am I glad that guy's dead. Doom and gloom, you know. That's all he did was speak about this and that. And remember, Israel was in their prime affluence. I mean, their technology, everything was going great at that time. And this prophet was out there saying, ah, you guys are going to collapse. Don't you, you, don't you understand? Repent. Find God in your life. The world's going to come unraveled sh- shortly. Get your life right with God. And Amos was speaking about this all through the years that he lived. And he dies about 20 years before the Assyrians invade. So the Israelites had about 20 years to allow what Amos told them to resonate. And guess what? They didn't listen. Nobody listened. Ah, the guy's dead now. He was a false prophet. Everything that he talked about never did come to pass. So he's a false prophet. And so they just wrote him off. Out of, uh, what do they say? Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. But then here comes Hosea, 20 years later. Eh, maybe 15. Starts speaking and picking up picking up the same story. And then here comes Isaiah. And here comes Micah. So here they are, all three, more than one man being used of God at the same time. God does not always and only work through one man. He works through multiple men. He worked through Daniel. He worked through Jeremiah. He worked through Ezekiel, all at the same time in three different locations. As we go through the Bible, remember the book of Daniel, we'll be picking that up next weekend after services of going through this Bible study in Daniel. Point being, God does work through multiple administrations and personalities all at the same time in different ministerial fashions and in different administrations. Here in chapter 4, Micah now talks about the last days in verse 1. And he specifically says, last days. Now keep in mind, Micah is under invasion. Micah's speaking probably around the time when Samaria, the capital of the ten tribes, was going down. The Assyrians were circling. Remember, it took the Assyrians uh, approximately three years 
to take Samaria down. It took the Assyrians four different sieges over 65 years to wipe out the ten, uh, the ten tribes. It wasn't just a wham, bam, slam you, man type of invasion. No, 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 no. Prophecy. Isaiah prophesied to Ahaz. Remember, 65 years. Don't worry, Ahaz, because he was all upset. He was all shaking in his, in his pants, so to speak, with his knees knocking because he was afraid Israel, his brother, was going to come down and invade him because he was, he was uh, uh, combined with the Syrians at that time. You can read about this in Isaiah, I think, chapter 7 or so. Point being, 65 years it took Israel to go down by the Assyrians. That was a fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah who said it would take 65 years for Israel to go down. Don't worry, Ahaz, he's not going to invade you. But here, Micah, he says, in the last days, it shall come to pass. Now, he's under invasion, and he's talking about the last days. He goes down through and describes, basically, the millennium. In verse 6, he says, in that day, says the Lord, same day that he's speaking about in verse 1 here, that he introduced everything to, uh, will I, I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have affected. But then in verse 9, he, he continues on in this prophetic mode, but in verse 9, he comes back to his timeline. And he says, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? He's talking to his people. Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. Now, I've mentioned this before. This is a prophecy. Micah knew that ultimately Israel, all of Israel, when it's defined, all of Israel being taken out of Palestine, ultimately would end up in Babylon because that's where the Jews were taken. The Jews were the last to go. The ten tribes didn't go to Babylon, but the Jews did, marking the culmination of taking out the nation, both houses of Israel. And here he says, Babylon, there shall uh, you be delivered. There, uh, the Lord shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And we know 70 years later, what did the Jews do? They returned, right? They went back to Palestine, rebuilt the temple under Cyrus. Remember, the Persian released them. About 45,000 Jews returned back to Palestine, just enough maybe to fill the Cleveland Browns stadium about halfway. That's all. And they went back, rebuilt the temple, set the stage for the coming of the Messiah, who was coming about 500 years or so later. The stage is getting set for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is like a play. I, I mean, it is so exciting. When you get into this and you see how all of this was done in preparation and God is steering this, this whole story, this saga, it, it's, it's so exciting, brethren, to see this kind of fulfillment in the pages of the Bible. And as I've often said, like, and I, I repeat myself about this, but Nostradamus has nothing on the Bible. But he goes on here in verse 11. He says, Now also... Many nations are gathered against you that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. 
for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor, meaning Israel. In other words, Israel's going to get taken. They're going to be like sheaves on the floor. But he says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make you a horn of iron. I will make your hooves brass. You shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. What's that about? Because this is a cruel joke in some respects when you put this into his timeline and he's under invasion, losing his neighborhood. His neighbors are being hauled off in captivity. People are, their houses are being burned. The nation is going to hell in a handbasket. And he's talking about the fact that the nation is going to be made into a strong horn of iron. It's going to thresh down its enemies and be on top, winning. I don't think so. We're not winning now, says Micah. You know, what are you talking about, Micah? As I've said, you know, what are you smoking? What are you drinking? And here, in this case, we find that, of course, later on, that he is prophesying of another time when Israel would be gathered up off of the floor. That's the picture, the figure of speech by which God is talking about an end-time Israel. Now, the prophet continues on. I don't have the time uh, to go through all of chapter 5. Maybe we'll reserve that for another time and go through it slower. But I want to bring your attention to this high point in verse 7. Again, I don't want to belabor it, and I don't want to be too redundant. I just want to make sure you get this. Micah is under duress. He's seen a lot of destruction throughout his nation at this time. Yet he says this in verse 7, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, verse 7, chapter 5, Micah, as the dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass, that tarries not for man, nor waits for the sons of men. And this remnant, the remnant of Jacob, shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people. Israel's being taken out by the Assyrians. They're going to be like sheaves on the floor. They're going to be regathered later. And now we find them among the Gentiles. As a lion, that's how she will be, among the beasts of the forest. This is metaphoric. It's figures of speech. But Israel, this remnant, will indeed be basically amongst the Gentiles and will be uh, like a lion among the beasts and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep. So it can be also ferocious in one case, but it can be also gentle, like a young lion in another case. He says here, uh, among the flocks of sheep, who if he goes through both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. So in other words, if he wants to have his way with these other beasts of the field, he can really go out and have his way. Your hand shall be lifted up upon your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And as I've often said, I wish this prophecy would end right there but it doesn't. The rest of the prophecy 
is quite sobering. Because, brethren, ultimately, the birthright of nations are being held accountable for what they're not doing in their relationship with God. It is important that all of us understand that we, as Christian people, have a responsibility to do the best we can to be lights in our community, to be lights in our areas of life, in the networks that we have, and to promote as best and as much as we possibly can the truth of what your Bible has to say about these things that are coming upon us. The world itself is actually now on the precipice of some very potentially dangerous times. I think all of us can understand that without a doubt. I mean, it wouldn't take even a whole nation to uh, throw us, that is the world, into a, a catastrophe or cataclysmic kind of event of global and of biblical proportions. It doesn't even take a nation. It could just, as I've often said, just take one person, a knucklehead of some sort, who gets his hands on some kind of a suitcase nuke or a mistake occurs and somebody accidentally shoots off a, uh, a nuke somewhere and it lands accidentally in some city, killing millions of people. You know, it's a world that is very volatile at this point. And it's important that all of us make sure that we don't sell the times that we're living in, that we're living in short. The next major thing, brethren, that is going to happen is the world is going to get more tense. We are going to find ourselves surrounded by circumstances that are going to become far more threatening as we go forward. We have conditions, like I said, that are going to be very trying and very tempting going forward as well. Get close to God. Take this time that you have, for the night is arriving. And when the night arrives, meetings like this may even be illegal. Meetings like this may not be possible. Meetings like this or time for you to study your Bible and get close to God through prayer and meditation and fasting and so on may not be available anymore because you'll be running for your lives. It'll be too much more uh, oriented toward survival. I don't want to scare you, but I do want to sober you and to help you recognize the day is upon us. Be urgent on yourselves.